0: It really has been good having been friends with Sean now for such a good season. And then uh, beginning on Zoom every month, talking with him um, about what's going on in his life and in his church and his ministry and praying for him and for you all. Uh, It's been fun now to be here over the weekend and be here this morning and see where he actually lives and works. So what a delight to be be here in, in so many ways. Um, uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for letting this old man come before you. The Lord's so good and I'm just so so glad to share with you some things that God's been doing in my own heart. First let me just ask a, a kind of a polling question. How many of you at home still have a what's, what you call a landline. Some of you young kids may not know what a landline is. Oh, some of you, okay. It's a phone with a cord that actually goes to the wall. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> landlines, unless it's in, a, in, linear, in, in an office, more and more are becoming a thing of the past, anachronistic, aren't they? Everybody has a cell phone. Some of you actually have it sort of... Sewed to your ear, don't you? Yeah. Um, uh, There's another thing that's becoming old and out of date, and that's cable. Now, Jan and I still have cable, and we don't understand streaming, and we've got a Roku TV, but we need our our kids and our grandkids to come help us figure out how to stream. We have cable, but uh, cable is less and less a deal, isn't it? Uh, You're streaming. I won't ask a poll about that, but some of you oldsters like me will remember uh, in Atlanta who was, probably from a human point of view, the, one of the most influential people in the world to get cable and 24-hour news going. Do you remember who it was? <laughs> Ted Turner, the mouth of the South. Um, he started CNN and the whole cable TV concept. And uh, if he didn't start it, he was the one that that, essentially made it work. Uh, I I remember, it really was a a big deal when you look back. I once read him quoted, he said, I was the world's greatest yachtsman. I'm close to being one of the world's greatest businessmen. I'm close to being the world's greatest environmentalist. His goal Hear his words. I'm trying to set the all time record for achievement by one person in one lifetime. And that puts you in pretty big company Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Gandhi, Christ, Muhammad, Buddha, Washington, Roosevelt, and Churchill. One friend I read said, Ted is the great I am. Yeah, right. Ooh. I, I really have prayed better things for Mr. Turner in his older age. But we, we tend to recoil, recoil from that kind of strutting arrogance, don't we? But I wonder if I, maybe if we, I don't, I don't want to project me onto you, but sometimes I wonder if I often don't actually, really deep down inside, long to be great, successful, somebody in, in my own career. Whether it's the arena of being a student, or a teacher, or a successful dad measured by how your kids do, or model mom, or the kid at school that other kids think is so cool, uh, or financially secure, or M&A staffer, or the, 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 the person who's always right or a successful engineer, or worker of whatever whatever sort. Uh, Our arena may vary, but I discover inside me a troubling tendency, a powerful drive to succeed, to be great in my area. Is that wrong? Is it wrong to have ambition and to want to succeed? There's something legitimate maybe about wanting to be successful, and at the same time we sense intuitively some tension and dangers, don't we? Do you, really want to be, do you really want to be truly great, successful? Well, what is that? What is greatness according to Jesus? Well, your scripture is in Luke 9. If you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, it's in your bulletin. By the way, the Bible's in the pews I understand, are for you if you don't have a Bible. So on behalf, I, I'm not giving them away. But, but the church is give, it would like you to have that. So if you're, if you're a guest here, by the way, we're so glad you're here. If you're a guest and don't have a Bible, please, please, please take it. But Luke 9, beginning with verse 43, it, began, it seems to begin right in the middle of something because Jesus and two, three of his disciples have just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And at the foot of the mountain had been a big hubbub And a a demon-possessed son had not been able to be healed by the disciples. And Jesus heals the son. And with this miraculous healing, verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. And while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, all the miracles and this healing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of, the, was the, which of them was the greatest. Here we go. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, Took a child and put him by his side, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is the greatest. John answered, See, John's responding to that. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Don't try to stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered Jerusalem a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This is God's very word to us today. Father, we're just a bunch of human beings and we're sinners. And boy, this guy who's standing up here ready to speak is every bit a sinner as anybody else. So, oh Lord, please, please now uh, use my weakness, speak through me, but speak your word to our hearts so that we're different from the way we came in, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the nature of true greatness? Uh, here and, and in several others, uh, other places in the Gospels, the disciples are talking about whose greatness, and they're not, <laughs> they're not talking theoret- theoretically. I wonder what greatness really is. They're pushing and shoving because they are trying to better each other. Um, and uh, see, that's the whole point: better each other. that one of the whole principles of greatness is, in the nature of the case, it has to do with other people in relationships. Greater, great means above someone else. And uh, Jesus, what is his view? What is his view? He turns their view of greatness totally on its head. What does he say greatness is? It's being last. It's being least. It's the way of humiliation. It's the way of lowliness. Greatness is coming in last. And that smacks me in the face. I don't like that naturally. Oh, I'll give lip service to it. But I want to be first. I want you to admire me. Let's look at the three kinds of people Jesus deals with and how greatness Great greatness shows itself in each case. Did you notice the three kinds of people? First, Jesus puts a little child beside him, almost as an equal. And I think that's Jesus' point. What was a child in the first century, and so often even today? Not much. A child in the first century was relatively nothing. You know the others that didn't matter to the members of Old First Church in Jerusalem, the Church of Jesus' day. Common people, Gentiles, sinners, riffraff, tax collectors, prostitutes, children. Remember when the parents wanted to bring the kids to Jesus and wanted him to bless them? Wouldn't that have been an experience, looking back, to have your kid, have Jesus... Bless them. And, but this, what the disciples do. No, 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 Get, no. No, no, no. shoo them away. We adults are what who are important. And remember, Jesus said, No, of these little kids is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says here, it's, it's these little kids, the people that don't matter, whom you value, and when you do, you're valuing me. There are those whose lives we touch that are the least. They don't matter. And Jesus says the great person sees those that don't matter with new eyes and values them because in valuing them, they're valuing Jesus. Who are the people that don't matter for you? I get a call from Bob, member of the small group that met in our home. Jim, I invited Joe Smith to come to, my, to our group on Wednesday night. Bob can't see the, the wince in my face, the groan in my spirit. Oh, no, not him. He'll mess up the group. Joe's just weird. (laughs) Socially inept, intrusive, a kind of church tramp, needy, dependent, noisy. And suddenly it hit me. I wasn't welcoming this little child like Jesus would have. And it was a status thing. I was great. He was nothing. There was a status. You see, there was, there was a greatness in my status above someone who didn't matter. And this happens most often in our, in our minds, but in, in, inevitably will bubble over into our behavior. And in most cases, our behavior is just to ignore. And so the least continue to be the least. So remember the broader setting of this greatness debate that the disciples were having? What can you expect almost always in the Gospels when the, when the disciples are arguing about greatness? What, what Jesus discusses? His own death. It's almost crazy. Every time they talk about how great they are, rah, 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 Jesus is saying, here's greatness. Uh, and everybody had been amazed at Jesus healing, the, 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 casting out the demons of this poor, poor boy. And in verse 43, they were amazed at the greatness and majesty of God. And Jesus says in verse 44, they think this is greatness. Listen, let this sink deep into your ears. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to the cross. And then comes the disciples' greatness debate. So as I thought of Joe, I thought of Jesus, his utter humiliation. He's going to the cross under God's punishing anger. Cosmically, he became nobody. But it was for me. I was the single lost sheep for whom he left the 99. I was the nobody who was valued by him. I was the one of all people. How could Jesus value me? I know what I'm really like. And I. Jesus became a nobody on the cross so that I could become his son and, or daughter or friend. I began to see Joe in a different light. I was still embarrassed by him. But he became a part of our group. Who are the people off your radar who don't matter? And that's the point. Part of our problem is just that they count so little that we don't ever see them. The quiet kid in the classroom who's always alone at lunchtime. The grocery store clerk that you see but you never see. The immigrant, the refugee, person of another race whose paths you may cross but never really engage. The person of another socioeconomic group that you never see, the non-Christian, you never engage because of our Christian ghetto. Why are they off our radar? Because we prefer to, to hook up with people Who are the beautiful people, whatever that means in your own culture, who can add to our sense of greatness by sort of riding their coattails? So we prefer the beautiful people at school, who are the cool kids, the beautiful people at work, the people who are making their mark, the people even at church. So on Sunday morning, we automatically head for our friends and we leave out the people who may be visiting or may have been in the churches for for 10 years but we don't really know. I can be such a name dropper if it helps me sort of feel important by riding on the coattails of someone who I say I know. I can love to drop the find a way like now to drop the name of my brother Nathan who summer before last retired as president of Wake Forest after what 17 years and after 30 years of teaching at Notre Dame, and I, I can sort of feel good at being Nat's brother. I can ride his coattails and be somebody by knowing him well. But the great person knows he's valued by Jesus because of the trip to Jerusalem to Jerusalem, the trip that where that led. And he serves those around her or him who don't matter because that's how he and she had been served by Jesus. Some of you may be wrestling with Christianity. You may have been raised in the church, but you're wrestling with this, this stupid Christianity and you're wondering if it, ever, if it really makes sense. And you know your worst self, you know your own self-absorption, your determination to be your own God, and you wonder if there really is a God and if Jesus is God and really died for your sins your crimes against a holy God, if it's true, it's just too bad. Because God couldn't really love someone like you. You're just too messed up, a real nobody. Remember the greatness of Jesus. He came to love and die for nobodies, the little child. We're all nobodies, And some of you have been in church all your life. You may have, like me, become a Presbyterian in utero. (laughs) And if you've never come to the place where you know deep down that you are a real mess, because of your crimes against the holy God, if you've never come to that place, that low place, you may not be a Christian. Because those are the people Jesus came to die for. Those are the people Jesus loved. We are all the ones who don't count. And Jesus loved us. How can we not love those around us who don't matter? Here's one test to see who are the ones that don't count in your life. Who are the folks, like after church today, if you're going to take someone home to dinner, Who would you be embarrassed by your best friends to take them home to dinner with you or to have them at your house on Friday night for a beer or for coffee or supper? Who would you be embarrassed to to be seen as a budding friend with? There's a line in an English mystery I read that said, but there was something about Ross that made you feel as if you didn't matter at all. Could people say that about you? Is there something about you that makes them feel they don't matter at all? They matter to Jesus. And you mattered to Jesus. And you were a nobody. How can we not look around with new eyes, Jesus' eyes, to see the people around us who don't matter? Thank the Lord that we can't say that about him. We matter. Jesus loves nobodies, and he became a nobody. And we can have that kind of love as we bask in his love. The second kind of person, the truly great person deals with. In verse 49, John is clearly defensive because it says he's responding to what Jesus said about the little child. He answered him, it says. And I like that, John. Luke makes clear that, Jesus, that John is sort of trying to give, defend himself. And so he says, Oh, Jesus, we saw a man casting out demons in your name, and he's not following us. He's not in the PCA. He's not in our denomination. Well, that's what it says. He's not, in, he's not following with us. He's not in our group. He's not in our tribe. John says, If I can't gain status over someone who doesn't matter, I'll gain significance over people I don't, that I don't agree with. There's a greatness of significance. We're in, they're not. They're outside, they're outside the circle. Yeah, he's casting out demons in your name, but boy, he's really not in the know like we are. So I can feel greater by drawing the circle tighter, excluding them, and it's them and us, and we are the ones and that happens all over, in all kinds of ways. You know, they just don't raise their kids like we do. You know, they don't really understand where our church ought to really be headed. Have you seen their kids? They're in public schools, they're homeschooled. She's a Republican? He's a Dem- How can you be a Democrat? <laughs> it's always in our mostly in our minds but whatever's in your mind will bubble out into our behavior with people we don't agree with we don't agree with and our greatness comes through our sense of significance against those outside our circle and jesus responds with a surprisingly scary broad principle unsettlingly broad the great person serves people he disagrees with by giving them the benefit of the doubt, to cutting some slack. Who do we usually give the benefit of the doubt to? Moi, me. You know, that's just my personality. You know, I've had such a bad day. You know, that's just me, whatever, whatever. And we're hard on other people, aren't we? We're hardest on others. Why not be hard on yourself, Jesus says. Flip that a bit. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Try to get to know them. Boy, I, well, I should have brought my, my bulletin up here. Someone read out loud, Fleming Rutledge, the quote in there. Can you read the quote good out loud? I think I... Come on, Sean. You, you're, you can stand, just stand up and read it. Read it, read it good and loud. Trying to understand someone else's predicament, right? Predicament is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Sorry for the interruption. I should have brought that with me. But that was, a, that was a, she makes a great point. What's happening in their life? Give them the benefit of the doubt. I can still, I can, I can, I can still exclude people from me, especially in my mind, until I remember Where was Jesus going? Why was the Son of Man betrayed by men? On the cross, do you know why Jesus died on the cross? To save me from my sins, oh sure, sure. He died on the cross to bring you into his circle. Peter says clearly, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once excluded, Peter says, now I'm accepted by him, drawn in by his incredible grace. I was the outsider. And he drew me in with his love and with his grace and with his life and death and resurrection for me. He adopted me into his family. You know what the amazing thing was about the cross and Jesus' awful torture experience? The amazing thing is, Jesus drew me into his circle by being thrown out of the Father's circle. My God, why have you abandoned me? Not only did Jesus become a nobody, Jesus became outside the circle. He he became the other, he became them. His humiliation was to bring me into his circle. And the great person knows she's accepted and serves people she disagrees with by giving them the benefit of the doubt. She works to pull them into her circle or his circle. This is so crucial in our present day, especially in our culture, our neighborhood, in our cities, in our church. Who in this church or in your circle of people do you disagree with the most? What can you do to bring them into your circle by, like Jesus, giving them slack, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Um, one, yes, once, I guess it was yesterday afternoon at the talk in the men's, I had a pullover shirt uh, and I began to disrobe. I said, I'm going to disrobe for you a minute. Uh, they all laughed. And I, I pulled up, and I put a new t shirt under me that my wife absolutely hates. And it says, I'm perfect, you change. <laughs> and you should have heard the men laugh just like that. Why do we laugh? Because isn't that, isn't that the way we are? And see, that's the, that's the way it is with people out, outside our circle. I'm perfect, you change. And on the cross, essentially, Jesus said, I'm perfect, but I'm going to become a sinner. I'm going to become sin so that you can become the righteousness of God. And I will change you. (sighs) Adopted into his family. You know, we all, you all here at, at Sycamore Church, can keep developing relationships, by building bridges across those lines that divide us, by giving people the benefit of the doubt, by taking them into your circle in little ways like Jesus has done for you. Thank God that Jesus, through his death, drew you into his circle by being abandoned by the Father. Ask him for his kind of love, for his kind of love. The third kind of person is in verse 51. It says Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and the Samaritans jerked the welcome mat. The light was turned off at Motel 6 that night. And the only reason is prejudice and hate, isn't it? And if you've been around church much over, over the years, you know the Samaritans and Samaritans were half-breeds and the Jews were same, the, and they just hated each other. That's why the parable of the Good Samaritan is so profoundly disturbing to the readers of those days. And they they hate each other. And so when the disciples see this reaction to Jesus, they know he's going to Jerusalem. It's clear. And James and John show a very clear response, like an Old Testament prophet. Why don't we call fire down and consume them? In Mark's gospel, Jesus gives those two guys a nickname. Remember what it was? The sons of thunder. sons of thunder. They were the zappers. (laughs) Few of us have out and out sworn enemies that we would resort to what James and John did, which is to say, Lord, I want them to go to hell, which is essentially what they want. No, we judge... Much more subtly, don't we? Our enemies are usually just those that we don't like, but especially people who've hurt us. And we can exercise our greatness in passive aggressive behavior that can undercut, malign, stonewall and damage without ever taking responsibility, even with humor. Oh, I was just kidding. And we <coughs> or talking about them when they're not there. Oh, you know, we need really need to pray about her because if you know, you know, you know how we do that when our little prayer times, or just ignoring them, or rolling our eyes about them. And here's a problem for me: gloating when something bad happens to them, busted. We can be like Jonah, who preached to the city of Nineveh, and then sits up on the wall on the mountain on the east. Of waiting for God to zap them. And they were so frustrated that God cuz he knew God was going gonna to to, rep, to let to let them repent. So cocky parents, cocky parents have trouble with their kid. Yeah. <laughs> or the best student in the class who's too big for his britches makes a C minus. Yeah, busted. He got his I'm alarmed at at the quiet glee that sometimes I can have when something bad happens to a pastor who has gone online and ranted and raved about a friend of mine or someone. And something bad happens to him, the ranter and raver, I can't feel good. So hard, Jim, it's so hard because Hurt has been done to me. How do you, you can't just sort of wink and say it was nothing. No, it was not nothing. It's impossible. It's impossible to deal with people with forgiveness and compassion. Don't go home yet. (laughs) It's impossible until we go back to what was happening here, James and John. Where were you guys going? with Jesus to Jerusalem and what was gonna happen there? The time was approaching and greatness would take the lowly place for you, James, for you, John, for me, Jim, for you, take the lowly place of suffering wrongly for you, yet opening not his mouth. We got compassion, we were his enemies. He got our sin. Our son has been church planting in London for 15, 16 years. He's home now for a time. Several years ago, he and his family flew uh, in mid December to St. Louis to give his kidney to a dear friend, Tim, in our church. And during the holidays, everybody was saying, Oh, as Chris recovered, oh, what a wonderful gift, what a class act, blah, 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 And Chris kept trying to deflect all the adulation and praise. No, 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 that's what a friend does for a friend, right? Christmas morning, we were opening, getting ready to open the, the gifts with all the great kids and grandkids. They were all there that year. <clears throat> and uh, I began to realize and talk to the grandkids, to all of us, to me, talking to me too, that Chris's gift of a kidney was nothing, nothing like God's gift of Jesus at Christmas. Chris's gift of a kidney was to a dear friend who was dying, literally dying of liver disease, or kidney disease. Um, Tim was a friend. We were God's enemies. A, 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 clo- a, a bit a closer analogy would be what would have happened if Tim had killed Josephine Hatch, my daughter-in-law. And then, hearing Tim in prison needing a kidney, Chris gave his kidney to Tim, his enemy, as it were. That's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit more like what Jesus has done for you and me. The great person begins to understand that he is the recipient of compassion and mercy and serves his enemies of whatever nature. His enemies, little e, not, his enemies with compassion and mercy, just like she, he has been treated. So who has hurt you? What's lurking back there the, nudging that grudge? Who are you grudging about silently, privately, deeply? At school, at work, in the neighborhood, in the family, extended family, here at church? Has it impacted your attitude and actions as you gain significance over that person, feeling so superior you can just ignore them, you can judge them? Who has hurt you that needs to be treated with compassion and mercy just like you have been? Thank God today, thank the Father that, he, that Jesus gave his life for you, his enemy, and asked him to give you that kind of love. Those of you who wrestle with Christianity, uh, just something to think about. This is the only religion, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's the only religion where God himself in Jesus comes and becomes a man in order to die for his enemies, for people who who rebelled against him, who essentially gave him the middle finger. He loves you that much. Think about that. As I continue to get to know my dear wife, Jan, I keep relearning and having to relearn that I can't love Jan in the abstract. I can say I love you, I love you, I love you. But to really love her, I have got to keep discovering what are her fears, her longings, her aspirations, her desires, what, is she, what really drives her. And then make them my own, so that what drives her drives me. In the same way, you, you can't love God just in the abstract. I love God, yeah? Abstract love is, is, is nothing. We need to keep discovering what is it that drives the Lord? What makes him tick, as it were? What are his aspirations? What, is, what are his goals? What drives him? You know what drives him? People. People that don't matter. People that are outside his circle. People that are his enemies. That's what drives him. And we love him. By absorbing that same love, absorbing that same desire for people just like that. Now, what are you going to do? You could go home and you could leave today and could focus on how poorly you may be loving people who don't matter or who differ from you or who have hurt you. And you could focus on that, focus on how I've got to try harder, try harder, and you could end up with a big load of guilt. let me encourage you to focus on the gospel instead. Focus on what Jesus has done for you, who didn't matter, who were outside his circle, and who were his enemy. Focus there. Bathe in his love for you, and his love for you will change you in your attitude to those kinds of people. And the more you let that gospel soak into your heart, the more we'll serve the Lord by loving others just like we've been loved. Join me as we pray. Kind, kind Heavenly Father, forgive our subtle and so not so subtle graspings for greatness. Precious Jesus, as you did to your disciples, turn our notions of greatness on its head as we better understand how we have been treated by you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that holy place, that lowly place for us all the way to the cross. Holy Spirit, we need your help. Empower us to serve our Lord by serving others. May we love and serve those who don't matter. Help us love and serve those we disagree with. Help us to love and serve those who've hurt us. May we do so first because we, not because we feel guilty, but because we've been gripped by your love.